step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the KarmaSense Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this episode is all about grass. <laughs> It's great to be back after a week's hiatus. I was promoting the KarmaSense eating plan once again through my friends at Dean's Natural Food Market, this time in Chester, New Jersey. Also, I was lending a hand to my boy who's moving from one side of town to the other. There's a lot about New Jersey that I miss, and so I love going back there. And helping someone I love upgrade his life is also a pleasure. In both cases, me looking back at where I grew up and my son looking towards the freedom one obtains when he has his own washer and dryer, I can say that the grass actually can be greener on the other side. And in this episode, we'll explore grass, weed, herb, and grass. It's not as subject-focused as it may appear, but hopefully it'll educate and entertain you, so why not give it a listen? I'm Davey H., and I'm a grassophobe. I'm probably not alone. I mean, there are a lot of irrational food fears out there. I'm not talking about irrational fears of gluten, lectins, GMOs, conventionally grown apples, or fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. You people know who you are. Those are all fed by fake news and the healthy lifestyle militia. I mean phobias that are conjured up by one's own thought process. These can be very general in nature. Phagophobia is the fear of swallowing or of choking when eating. Majericophobia is the fear of cooking. I think Mrs. H has that. She always seems nervous whenever I cook. Some of the general ones are very general. Sebophobia is the fear of eating or foods in general. And then others are oddly specific, such as consecutaliophobia, which is the fear of chopsticks. Then there are food phobias that are specific to certain foods. Electorophobia is not the fear of the process that gave us our current president. Get it? Electorophobia? Electoral college? I find jokes always work out best when you have to explain them. Don't you? Anyway, electorophobia is actually the fear of chickens. Now, chickens are assholes, but that's not a reason to be afraid of them. And alliumphobia causes people and vampires, I assume, to be terrified of garlic. And before you go full in on me, if you believe that vampires are human, then you haven't read the great Quora debate on that subject. Fear not. I attach a link in the show notes. Although, based on my side stats, most of you seem to have show notophobia. Mycophobia is the fear of mushrooms. And me? As I said, I'm a grassophobe. Now, before you jump to conclusions as to what that means... Keep in mind that all the phobias I listed gave you no hint as to what the phobic is fearful of. And by the way, what the phobic would be an excellent name for a rock and roll band. Who'd have guessed that a majericophobic has the fear of cooking? Or mycophobia is the fear of mushrooms? 
So, what is a grassophobe? Well, GRASS is the acronym for a legally and federally regulated term that expands to generally recognized as safe. I can hear you in the audience now. Davy H., you always seem so rational. Well, with the exception of your obsession on comic book characters. Oh yeah, and the fact that at your advanced age you still think poop jokes are funny. But other than that, you seem rash... Oh, yeah, there's that weird thing you do whenever you mispronounce the word diabetes. Diabetes. And the chickens are asshole things, too. Someday you're going to have to explain that. But anyway, Davy H., you seem so rational. Surely something that's generally recognized as safe is nothing to fear. And to that, I give you a hearty, geezer-like feh. Now, another trait I have that argues against me being rational is my irrational need to mansplain stuff as if we were taking a survey course on the subject. In deference to that trait, let's look just a little bit at the history of food safety in the U.S. It all started with a book that many of us became familiar with in high school. That book was Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Now, I personally didn't become familiar with the book until very recently. Back in high school, though, I was deeply engrossed in the Cliff Notes version when assigned the book my senior year. The Jungle, written in 1906, exposed the harsh and unsanitary conditions in America's meat processing industry. This was a time when books were actually a popular form of entertainment, and The Jungle in particular was a popular book. The uproar associated with the book inspired the federal government to do something that seems quaint by today's standards. They decided to do something. And that included the passage and signing of the Pure Food and Drug Act, which chartered what was then called the Bureau of Chemistry and is now known as the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, to ban foreign and interstate traffic in adulterated or mislabeled foods and drug products. It also directed the Bureau to inspect products and refer offenders to prosecutors. And this process seemed to work out pretty well for the next 50 years. But after World War II, food manufacturers started taking over more of the shopping and cooking responsibilities that were formerly performed by America's housewives and house husband. They bought ingredients in bulk and cooked them in their factory kitchens. And the new types and varieties of food-like products requiring inspection grew faster than the FDA's ability to inspect. And this led to the 1958 Food Additives Amendment to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Recognize that this was in the late 50s, before we even knew that Nabisco would be releasing a new flavor of Oreos every month. The month I'm recording this, the Oreo flavor is Firework. And that's Firework, like Katy Perry's song, and not Fireworks, which is how most normal people would say it. This falls hot on the heels of their waffle and syrup flavor, which you can only buy at select stores such as Albertsons. And their Easter-ready Peeps flavor, which reportedly turned poop the color pink. And this Oreo thing may seem like a digression, and I have to admit it is, but I'll relate back to it later. With the good additive amendment, the government established a provision that manufacturers demonstrate the safety of food ingredients. In order to prevent the system from being overloaded with ingredient demonstrations, Lawmakers added the concept of certain ingredients being generally recognized as safe, or, as we'll refer to it going forward, GRAS. 
This makes sense as demonstration of common ingredients like baking soda or vinegar would be pretty dull and meaningless. Demonstrations of ingredients like baking soda and vinegar, however, are still pretty cool, especially when mixed inside a paper mache volcano. And thus, the grass loophole was born. The loophole was meant for ingredients grandma used to use. But in 1997, the FDA introduced a new rule that allowed companies to decide for themselves what ingredients qualify as grass and report those designations to the FDA, or not, on a voluntary basis. This expanded loophole applies as long as it doesn't change the color of the food. That's the only exception to the exception, changing the color of the food. And this is where, as Chinua Achiba said in another book with which I'm cliff note familiar only, things fall apart. If a company does volunteer to report, they only need to establish that the ingredient has been in general use since 1958, or that qualified experts agree that the ingredient is safe. And who determines who the qualified experts are? The same companies promoting the new ingredient. According to a study from the Pew Charitable Trust, motto, if snowflakes care about it, we study it, cuck. 64% of the panels used for grass submissions consisted of employees of companies doing the submissions or contractors to that same company. None of the submissions reviewed used panels assembled by independent third parties. That's not the way things work with drug approvals, by the way. Even though both additives or and drugs are often just chemicals. Also, professional grass expert appears to be a viable career path. One panelist in particular appeared on 75% of the panels. Hmm, do you think companies are going to hire the expert who consistently says, nah, I don't recognize this as safe? And remember, submitting grass notifications is voluntary. Companies do it to shift blame to the government if the additive is ever found not to be safe. The only reason why companies do it is to shift blame to the government if the additive is ever found to not be safe. This sets up a situation where companies will submit notifications, get pushback from the FDA, withdraw their notification, and use the ingredient anyway. This is a real twist on the, instead of asking for permission, ask for forgiveness maxim. These guys are doing both. And so, epigallocatechin 3 gallate and gamma-aminobutyric acid are two additives found naturally in very small amounts in foods, but have no scientific evaluations on safety and side effects. Both are common additives to food. In small quantities, both may have some beneficial effects, but neither has undergone extensive study, and no one knows if there are such things as toxic levels. Some of these submissions come under the cover of the Flavor and Extract Manufacturers Association, who have the unfortunate acronym of FEMA, and probably a worse reputation than the other FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, after Hurricane Katrina. I want to thank you all for, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. <laughs> the FEMA director is working 24 The Flavor and Extract Manufacturers claim Ophenolphenol is safe, even though the state of California considers it a carcinogen. Another chemical blessed by this group, trans-trans-2,4-hexadienyl, a trans so nice they transed it twice, is safe for use as flavoring, despite classification as a possible carcinogen by the International Association for Research on Cancer, also known as IARC, who I also excoriate 
excoriation is how I roll, in episode 23, The Foodcast. And the list of grassy foods isn't limited to multisyllabic repetitions of syllables trans and phenol. Trans fats, or partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, were once considered generally recognized as safe. And now we know they cause inflammation, circulatory issues, and perhaps Alzheimer's disease, and the FDA is phasing them out of our food system. Lesser known to many, but perhaps the vegetarians in the audience have heard of a meat substitute called corn. Corn is a more folksy name for something called mycoprotein, and that's the same myco I referenced earlier when talking about the fear of mushrooms, mycophobia. Corn is a microscopic fungus closely related to malt. The Centers for Science in the Public Interest, which in effect is to consumer protection what the American Civil Liberties Union is to constitutional protection, has an ongoing dispute with the FDA because their list of adverse reactions reported by consumers of corn continues to grow. And these reactions range from belly aches that result in stuff coming out of your body in volumes and from locations that they should not. This stuff includes partially digested food, fully digested food, and blood. And if you think it was easy saying all that without referencing poop, you're wrong. Other corn victims report fainting, hives, and other potentially fatal anaphylactic reactions. But corn is generally recognized as safe. As you can see, the whole grass process is fraught with peril. You've never seen so much fraught in one place. And that place leads firmly back to the FDA, an FDA who's led by Scott Gottlieb, a physician with zero experience in food or nutrition policy, but a long-standing and happy relationship with the biopharmaceutical industry. He's had financial business dealings, including serving as the board for GlaxoSmithKline, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And the only difference between a pharmaceutical company and a food additive company is that pharma makes claims that its products improve health in some way. Food additive companies just have to say they don't make you worse off than you were before. Scott Gottlieb is friendly to that cause. And that, my friends, is why I have grassophobia and will continue to have grassophobia until grass designations aren't granted to new chemicals or to substances deemed risky by authoritative scientific bodies. It's fine if you pay your panel of experts to say something is safe, but if another panel says, uh-uh, then you go through a more rigorous process. I'll continue to have grassophobia as long as its designations rely on unpublished studies and depend on experts with clear conflicts of interest. And that grassophobia of mine will remain until the FDA makes grass notification mandatory and public, and not voluntary and secret. You know what you can do about this. It's the usual. You reach out to your elected representative and you add this one to the list of all the other things that he or she is doing wrong. Meanwhile, this is one of the many reasons why I ask that people avoid processed foods. And it pains me to say this, because if you don't think that this guy, this food-obsessed guy, this food-obsessed guy whose sense of humor never made it past the sixth grade, doesn't want to try the Oreos that'll turn my poop the color pink, or the Oreos that are going to explode in my mouth like I swallowed baking soda and vinegar, 
the very same Oreos I have stored right now in my KarmaSense Wellness stunt closet, then you don't know this guy very well. From grass to grass. I've heard about this thing called marijuana, also known as grass, pod, herb, and weed. It's catching on these days. Now, I have no direct experience with this stuff. At least that's my story as long as I suspect my kids are listening to this. While I've spent most of my life with weed being illegal, it's now legal for recreational use in eight U.S. states in the District of Columbia. It's also legal for treatment of medical conditions in 28 states, plus D.C. This is in direct conflict of federal law. And the current administration, who's all about states' rights, is making noise about challenging states' rights to make relaxed laws that regulate dope. They're making noise, but seem to be distracted by other things, so who knows if they'll ever actually do anything. It's a funny thing about weed. It has so many purported medical benefits and so few documented medical risks, especially relative to other legal substances such as tobacco, alcohol, trans fats, corn, and trans-trans-2,4-hexadienol. Yet despite this, it remains illegal. But maybe that isn't funny. First of all, marijuana's benefits are nonspecific, and the FDA doesn't like to approve drugs with nonspecific therapeutic value. An example often touted by medical experts is aspirin. Aspirin's effects are nonspecific. It's well known as a pain reliever and anti-inflammatory. And because aspirin is a blood thinner, it often is administered as soon as people complaining of chest pain arrive at the emergency room. But aspirin has a tonic effect that goes beyond acute conditions. Chronic heart patients are often put on a regimen of low-dose baby aspirin to prevent future heart attacks. People who take a daily dose of aspirin have a reduced incidence of colorectal cancer. Now, aspirin came into widespread use in the late 19th century, prior to the existence of the Pure Food and Drug Act and the evolution of the FDA to its current state. And many medical experts, including the venerable Dr. Andrew Weil, claim that if a drug manufacturer tried to submit a new drug application for aspirin today, pre-Scott Gottlieb, it would never get approval due to its nonspecific therapeutic nature. Marijuana's regulatory path was vastly different. People have been taking weed since ancient times, but grass was specifically grouped with other mind-altering substances in the 1908 Pure Food and Drug Act as a controlled substance. As the U.S. began to get prohibition fever, one by one states declared pot as an illicit, illegal substance, and the feds finally bought in in 1947. That's when they closed the deal. Up until that time, marijuana could be safely dispensed by doctors for therapeutic reasons, but ultimately its potential upsides were outweighed by the downsides as clearly documented in the 1936 film, Reefer Madness. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Those therapeutic claims never went away. But scientific studies of those claims were sparse. Between the paperwork required to do research on an illegal drug and the lack of funding sources given the fact that drug and tobacco companies can't patent pot, research languished. So here we have a cheap, easy-to-grow substance with purportedly over 30 therapeutic and disease-preventing qualities, 
the substance being used by more and more Americans every day to address these conditions, but no reliable research to say it actually works? That is until recently. Since the turn of the current century, there's been over 24,000 studies. For some reason that I'm still trying to figure out, it's really easy to find volunteers for a marijuana study. And 24,000 individual studies, it's nice, but when they stand alone, they provide results that are interesting and rarely conclusive. The best way to turn all that data into something actionable is to do a meta-analysis, a study of studies that normalizes all that data and looks at the quality of the study design and consistency of results. Recently, the National Academy of Sciences, Go Burnin Bunsen's, completed one of them their meta-analyses and found that, drumroll please, most of the purported benefits of smoking grass or other means of ingesting it are bullcrap. There's decent evidence that pot helps with chronic pain, <laughs> he said chronic, nausea control for chemotherapy recipients, warding off multiple sclerosis symptoms in some cases, and some sleep disorders. Most other health claims don't stand up. Glaucoma? No. Epilepsy? Not so much. Tourette syndrome? Nope. Now, that's not to say, if you have these conditions and pot seems to relieve symptoms, that this isn't some kind of N equals 1 situation. It may be that marijuana is just a placebo. And as I like to say about placebos, if they don't cause harm, but make you better, who cares if the results are in your head? What about harm? The study found limited links to pot use and some forms of cancer, mostly respiratory cancer, such as lung and throat, and so maybe that's linked to smoking it as opposed to eating pot. And that's the lowdown. For the most part, its use is purely recreational. But don't let that stop you from walking into your local dispensary and dropping a string of high-volume F-bombs in an attempt to score some grass for your Tourette syndrome. And yes, that was an Easter egg for certain listeners out there who can probably think of a joint acquaintance who likely procures her stash that way. <laughs> he said joint. Listener Trini asked for a future episode about herbs and spices. And this is something I always planned on doing for the Karma Sense blog and the Foodcast. Herbs and spices offer the one-two punch for improving health. First, they make healthy foods we might otherwise avoid more palatable. Second, they add their own positive nutrition profile of essential nutrients. The amazing book, The Karma Sense Eating Plan, recently voted number one in the self-help genre of all books with a built-in Rickroll, gives some insight to this and includes a handy table of spice blends one can use to make plain vanilla food mimic your favorite regional cuisine. Herbs and spices are a great subject, but as I learned in the Foodcast episode about supplements, it's just too exhaustive. And so, what I'll do from time to time is pick an herb or spice and do a deep dive. This month, mint. Now, maybe I could pick a more common one to start off with. I already did salt in episode 33. Plus, salt is a seasoning, a mineral, and not really an herb or spice. I could do pepper, but that's one I do intend to cover in an entire episode. Oregano, basil, etc. So banal. I already touched on turmeric in episode 15. And so, I pick mint. And the main reason I pick mint is I planted a small plant in a tiny corner of my yard five years ago, and now every summer it takes over like a weed, 
so I have to figure out what to do about it. But first, let's get a little terminology out of the way. Herbs are the leafy part of a plant used primarily for its flavoring. Spices come from other parts of the plant, such as seeds, roots, bark, fruit, and stems. Salt and other non-organic flavorings don't fit either description. Using this as the definition, mint is an herb. There are many different varieties of mint, but the ones we encounter most often are spear or peppermint. When we see mint sold in the stores as just plain old mint, it's probably spearmint. Other varieties often grow wild or are sold at farmer's markets. You can also buy dried mint, but this is usually a waste because its flavor is so severely muted and fresh mint is so easy to get and grow whenever and wherever the temperature stays several degrees north of freezing. I'm not kidding about how easy this stuff is to grow. I never water, feed, or prune mine. I only touch it when I use it. Mint grows wild in the weed-infested parking lot of the bar across the street from where I live. That bar uses it for its drinks. I see what neighborhood dogs do in that parking lot. And that's why if I go to that bar, I only drink the beer. Seriously, I'd totally go for the minty fresh iced tea instead of beer if it weren't for me knowing the source of that mint. Two tablespoons of fresh mint, or about six grams, has five calories and negligible amounts of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Mint also has vitamins A, B9, C, calcium, iron, manganese, and some of the fat is a desirable omega-3 type. But people eat mint in such small quantities, it and most other herbs and spices will never be huge sources of these nutrients. Still, mint is only one of the many weapons in your arsenal. A diet full of a variety of herbs and spices will ensure an ongoing supply of beneficial nutrients at a low caloric cost. And that sort of fills in the cracks of your nutrition better than jello on a full stomach. As with many of the more pungent herbs, mint carries a crap load of antioxidants. One of those is something called rosmarinic acid. Studies show rosmarinic acid is effective at reducing inflammation and other symptoms associated with seasonal allergies. Mint thrives in the spring, when most people are allergic to tree, grass, and weed pollen. It's right there, folks, at the bar across the street. The menthol in mint serves as an anti-expectorant, meaning it can break up the goopy stuff that accumulates in your nose, throat, and lungs when you have a cold. Mint can also calm all sorts of digestive tract issues, from bad breath and mouth infections to what goes on in the other end, if you know what I mean. A wink's as good as a nod to a blind bat. The only exception to this digestive health thing is if you have acid reflux, stomach ulcers, or other conditions that result from too much acid in the upper gastrointestinal tract, because mint can exacerbate those conditions. Also, it can make them worse. There are some other crazy uses for mint, such as what was found in a 2007 study performed by the Tabriz University of Medical Science. Go pomegranates! That study suggested that peppermint water is effective in preventing nipple cracks and nipple pain in first-time mothers who are breastfeeding. As my breastfeeding days are long over, I'll leave that one to the rest of you. Mint is best used soon after it's been cut. Depending on the recipe, you eat the leaves whole, or you may chop them first. Pro tip, get a decent pair of kitchen shears, because mint is a lot easier to chop with a scissor action than it is with a knife. 
Mint can flourish in both sweet and savory dishes. It works well in salads, dressings, and sauces, and it pairs especially well in meals that include fruit. Mint's a great accompaniment to dishes that are cooked in the Mediterranean or North African styles. One of my favorite uses is to mix chopped mint leaves and Greek yogurt with a little lemon or lime all to taste and use that as a dipping sauce for otherwise low-flavored grilled meats like boneless, skinless chicken breasts. And you can add a bit of honey, too, if you roll that way. For more of a Thai-Asian flair, mix two parts lime juice to one part each of fish sauce, toasted sesame oil, and honey. Throw in a couple handfuls of chopped mint and use this as a marinade or salad dressing. If, as a result of planting one tiny plant of mint, you end up with a yardful, only to be faced with an oncoming winter of white walkers, you can pick the choice leaves from your plants, wash them, dry them, and chop them, and then fill the compartment of an ice tray about halfway. Cover them in water and let them freeze, and keep them in an airtight container and add them to sauces, etc. as you need them. Alternatively, you can spread whole wash leaves on a sheet pan, put the pan in the freezer, and after a few hours, store the frozen leaves in a plastic bag. This is easier and will work better than any of the techniques that have you dry the mint. And so, that ends part one of our continuing series about herbs and spices. If you're curious about a specific herb or spice, you know who you can ask. And bring things full circle, back to grass. In yet another new ongoing segment, the Foodcast is proud to present what the actual fudge is up with ellipsis. Or dot dot dot. In segment one, I respond to listener Lorville's question. I hope I pronounced it right. What the actual fudge is up with wheatgrass? Well, wheatgrass is one of those health bar, juice bar staples that can cure disease, make you pretty, and help the wizards take down the cavaliers. And I know that isn't actually what happened this year, and that's probably because the wizards just don't do wheatgrass. To give what the actual fudge is up with wheatgrass, the full KarmaSense treatment, we first have to look at what the actual fudge is wheatgrass. And wheatgrass is, or are, the tender young shoots of the actual wheat plant. They should not be confused with grain wheat that's used in bread, pasta, etc. And that contains the evilest substance of all time, gluten. The grain comes from the mature plants, fruits, or berries. Wheatgrass is, or is it are, the leaves. If people added wheat or wheatgrass to food primarily for flavor, wheat would be a spice and wheatgrass would be an herb. But wheatgrass tastes like well, grass, so rarely do people consume it for its flavor. Wheatgrass harkens back to ancient Egypt, around the time when Dwayne the Rock Johnson was running around that way. It became a Western world sensation in the 1930s when Charles Schnabel, who I don't think is any relation to George Schnabel with whom I went to day camp, allegedly revived his ailing chickens by feeding them fresh-cut wheatgrass. He was so amazed by their recovery he started packaging and promoting it for human health. He claimed that when it came to his chickens, they not only recovered, but they thrived and went from laying eggs every three days to laying them daily. Now to me, that doesn't sound like such a difficult achievement. After all, I lay an egg every time I drop an episode of the Foodcast. 
You most often see wheatgrass growing in hipster juice bars or whole food equivalents in clear trays that were probably bought at Ikea. Wheatgrass looks like your typical blue fescue or Kentucky blue. This is a hybrid. This is a cross, uh, a bluegrass, Kentucky bluegrass uh, featherbed bent and uh, Northern California sensimilla. When you actually consume it, it's either dried into a powder or juiced. Since it's from the leaf and not the berry, pure wheatgrass contains no gluten. So it's got that going for it, which is nice. The list of alleged health benefits of wheatgrass is amazingly long. It clears your skin, helps you lose weight, reduces cravings, detoxes, a short giveaway of bullcrap, improves immunity, builds strength and musculature, shrinks tumors, stimulates circulation, improves digestion, treats arthritis, makes you more peppy, gets rid of body odor, hastens the healing of wounds, fights tooth decay, cleanses the liver, which is somehow different from detoxing, decreases sunburn pain, improves cholesterol levels, cures the common cold, treats hangovers, improves mood, reduces stress, and fights depression. I gotta say, if you cure my hangover, my mood improves, my stress levels go down, and I am no longer depressed. It strengthens nails, eases that time of month when women have that not-so-fresh feeling, fights irritable bowel syndrome, fights infection, slows aging, protects from radiation. Finally, I can toss my tinfoil hat. Stabilizes blood sugar, improves IQ, fights dandruff, makes you horny, improves fertility. And that could be a dangerous combination if you're not prepared. And it sensitizes taste buds. Is all or any of that true? If it is true, why don't nutritionists issue a minimum daily requirement for wheatgrass? Well, let's start off with nutrition contents. A couple tablespoons of wheatgrass powder, which is a normal serving, about 8 grams, has 30 calories, 2 grams of protein, 4 grams of carbohydrates, half of which is fiber, and no fat. Also, wheatgrass is high in vitamins A, C, and K, and exceeds the recommended daily amounts of vitamins B1, 2, 3, 5, 6, and vitamin E. That's not too shabby. Wheatgrass is also high in iron and copper and exceeds daily minimum requirements for zinc and manganese. And like chinch bugs, a lot of people don't even know what that is. And that completes the nutrition profile of wheatgrass, as well as my trifecta of Caddyshack references to this segment. Wheatgrass also contains some of the antioxidants and phytonutrients that are so popular with kids these days. What's missing from that list? Any magical substance, the consumption of which produces any of the long list of benefits I just listed. There's nothing about wheatgrass that you can't get from many other dark green leafy vegetables. But the food cast encourages you to eat food and not macronutrients, vitamins, minerals, or phyto thingies. And part of the reason is that real food tends to be the optimum delivery mechanism for any individual nutrition. For example, the human body absorbs iron better when it's consumed with vitamin C. And wheatgrass, like lots of vegetables, contain both in one tasty package. So maybe wheatgrass as a whole is uniquely qualified to address certain health conditions. Unfortunately, not a lot of research is available on wheatgrass. When you can grow a crop on the shelf of your Jamba Juice at the Mid-City Mall, there's not a lot of value in proving its worth. However, there are a few studies. An Israel Institute of Technology study, Go Mathletes, found wheatgrass juice eased the symptoms of ulcerative colitis. 
And meanwhile, another study from the same institution, we Jews love our wheatgrass, found that wheatgrass reduced some of the harmful side effects of chemotherapy. Hey, isn't that one of the few bona fide benefits I mentioned earlier when we were talking about marijuana? Maybe Carl Spackler was on to something, but instead of mixing Kentucky bluegrass with his Northern California sense Amelia, he should have used wheatgrass. Other than those two benefits, there's really not much to the rest of the claims you heard. And at this point, I don't remember whether Lorval asked me what the actual fudge is up with wheatgrass, or how many Caddyshack references can you force fit into one foodcast segment, but I'm sure I answered at least one of these questions. And if you want to know what the actual fudge is up with some food trend, go ahead and hit me up. And so ends episode 39 of the Carmesense Foodcast. Keep those cards and letters coming. But hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort? A review and share on Apple Podcasts would be nice. But I've bent your ear enough for one day, so let's put this episode to bed and remember what your old pal, the Dalai Lama, always says. You know what the Lama says? No. Gunga Galunga. Gunga Gunga Galunga. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know. And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. (laughs) So I got that going for me, which is nice. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.